0: Welcome fellow true crime enthusiasts to today's case file who murdered Jimmy Gall the investigation Welcome to body of crime your go-to true crime podcast where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of Body of Crime. In the wake of our gripping premiere episode who murdered jimmy gall 1964 where we introduce the heart-wrenching tale of seven-year-old jimmy gall's tragic fate we now plunge one step deeper into the chilling depths of this unsolved mystery picture yourself in the tumultuous era of 1964 where the very fabric of investigative techniques starkly contrasts with the high-tech methods that we have available in today's day and age.
1: The uniformed policemen arrive first. One remains outside. The other protects the crime scene until the detectives get there. The officer in charge plans the search and makes the assignments. When physical evidence is found, it is immediately photographed. Physical evidence is the most important clue in this investigation. Fingerprints provide a positive means of personal identification and form an indisputable link in the chain of evidence.
2: In crimes of violence involving bodily contact, there is often an interchange of hairs and fibers between the victim and the assailant. The hairs and fibers unit of the FBI laboratory searches for, examines, and compares such evidence.
0: On May 3rd of 1964, upon the discovery of young Jimmy Gall's body, there was a flurry of activity as inspectors or detectives as they're known today began searching feverishly for any clues that might have led to a suspect as to who could have committed such a horrendous act in what should have been a safe place to live by all accounts. These investigators would amass over 500 pages of investigative reports. They would interview over 700 individuals. They would traverse over 5,000 miles by car and 4,000 miles by air in search of elusive answers. With 210 inquiries made to the State Bureau of Criminal Identification and Investigation and 123 suspicious vehicles scrutinized, the sheer scale of the investigation was staggering. There were more than 2,000 case hours logged just in 1964 alone. As we delve deeper into this case and the investigation, we have meticulously reconstructed the initial moments of the investigation, tracing law enforcement's tireless efforts to untangle cryptic clues and identify elusive persons of interest. Join us as we journey back in time, peeling back the layers of history to explore the initial investigation into Jimmy Gall's murder. Amidst the backdrop of primitive forensic tools and relentless determination, we uncover the challenges faced by detectives in their quest for justice. From fingerprinting to blood analysis, we'll work to unravel the threads of evidence and shed light on some shadowy leads piecing together the puzzle of this perplexing crime. As we navigate through the murky waters of suspicion and delve into the haunting echoes of a community scarred by tragedy, we strive to unearth the truth and bring closure to a decades-old
3: mystery. In 1964, Sisters Heights, California boasted a modest yet dedicated law enforcement infrastructure. The town primarily relied on its local police department, which worked closely in coordination with the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office for additional support when needed. The police department, comprising of a small team of officers, served as the front line in maintaining law and order within the community. These officers, though equipped with basic investigative skills, operated within the constraints of the era's technological limitations. Unlike the sophisticated tools and resources available to modern law enforcement, officers in 1964 leaned heavily on traditional methods of investigation, such as witness interviews, evidence collection, and firsthand observations. Their expertise was honed through years of on-the-job training and experience, rather than formalized education programs or specialized forensic training. Despite their limitations, compared to present-day counterparts, these officers were deeply committed to upholding justice and ensuring the safety of their communities.
0: At this point in time, so Citrus Heights is a suburb of Sacramento and pretty much at that point in time, the Sacramento Sheriff's Department really was the law enforcement entity for that area and they were severely understaffed and having a very hard time recruiting at the time, partly because of the fact that they were paying significantly lower than a lot of the surrounding areas and what was expected at that point in time back in that day. Just kind of bear that in mind when, you know, when we're talking about the investigation. Also, not just that, but think about the fact that back then, a lot of showing up on a scene and starting the investigation was really, they didn't have CSI, they didn't have, you know, they didn't have those different elements that are, really specially trained for those particular things. So you had police officers who did multiple things. They patrolled the streets. They also worked crime scenes. So today you don't see that. If you're a patrol officer, typically you're not having really anything to do with crime scenes other than if you just happen to be like the first one there, you know, their duties are are very split up and all of them have some type of specialty. Yeah. They're more siloed. Right. And they have very specific training as well. A lot of them obtain specific certifications or have education in, in those different areas. And that's not how it was back then. During this time, they were just starting to do things like offer training, and it really wasn't even like... I would say, university training. It was more like, hey, the FBI is going to be in this area and they're going to be offering training on casting footprints or shoe prints, or they're going to be here offering a class on documenting a crime scene. So it was more how to hone certain skills and not really making you a specialist in a particular area.
3: Right. You're really a generalist.
0: Forensic analysis was still in its infancy in 1964, compared to sophisticated techniques that are available today. Investigators in Citrus Heights, California, had access to a limited range of forensic tools and techniques to aid their investigations. Key among these were fingerprinting, which served as a fundamental method for identifying individuals involved in criminal activities. Blood typing was also utilized to some extent, providing insights into potential suspects or victims based on blood found at crime scenes. Additionally, basic ballistics analysis whenever firearms are used in the commission of a crime helped connect firearms to crime scenes or suspects. However, the absence of advanced forensic technologies such as DNA analysis presented significant challenges for investigators. Unlike contemporary investigations where DNA evidence can be pivotal in solving cases, 1964 detectives had to rely heavily on physical evidence and eyewitness testimony often leading to prolonged and complex investigations. The absence of DNA analysis posed significant hurdles for investigators in accurately linking suspects to crime scenes or victims. Without the ability to definitively match DNA evidence, investigators were forced to rely on more traditional methods of evidence collection and analysis. This reliance on physical evidence such as fingerprints and blood samples often resulted in prolonged investigations and increased the likelihood of false leads. Moreover, the lack of advanced forensic tools meant that cases often hinged on circumstantial evidence, witness testimonies, and the intuition and experience of law enforcement personnel. day when you show up to a crime scene immediately the first thing that's done even if your crime scene individuals haven't shown up who come and and process a lot of the evidence or collect a lot of the evidence and really have a very strict requirement for how things are tagged how things are bagged and the sequence of custody those things are handled so Back then, when you showed up to a crime scene, they didn't do a lot of what you see today where they're roping off the crime scene to keep people from getting in, to keep evidence from being damaged. So keep in mind that this very field had been gone through the day before pretty extensively like there was people walking all over that field Mm. so when jimmy's body was found one of the things that they needed to do was they needed to figure out if there was any evidence that they could collect in the field so this is why they tried to kind of clear the area so that they could start to work out from where the body was found to try to look and see if there was potential evidence surrounding that area that could connect the person of interest to the scene of the crime right now if there was blood available then that blood would be collected and they would type it and they would try to see if the blood matched jimmy and then if the blood had the potential to match somebody else so that would have been something that they did and they would have kept that anything that had Blood on it or was used as a murder weapon in this case would be what they're saying is potentially an article of Jimmy's clothing that was still left tied around his neck. That would also be
3: kept. That stuff, if kept from back then, would potentially still have DNA that could be associated with whatever those fabrics were if they still had those items today.
0: Absolutely. They could have hair. So something very unique that they can do today. There could be a drop of paint that's left on a scene let's say a scraping from a car and they can identify based on that paint what model car that came from right that's pretty unique so yeah. there are a number of different things that today can be tested that were not able to be tested back then more of what they were looking for back then is the blood typing really prints maybe that they could find so if there was an item that was used that was left near the scene or there's mention that in addition to his clothes, there was also a couple items close by as well that were near like where the clothes and everything were. Those items would have been looked at for fingerprints. Now, there are some advancements that were made after that time frame that had to do with fingerprints as far as revealing fingerprints on things, even such as a body. Right Now, obviously, when you don't have a body that can be tested in that manner, you're kind of out of luck when it comes to that. But for those items that they would have collected from the scene, there's a potential that there could be prints that maybe they weren't able to see back then that they could see now. There is possible DNA that could be available on, say, the white cloth material that was around his neck. There's, let's say, the the type of a knot that it was could connect the person based on the type of a knot. Um, So there's just a number of different things that they could use. There's been mentioned of potential mutilation and just i wanted to let everybody know for their awareness that mutilation doesn't always mean that it's cutting or biting all the way through flesh it could be a bite mark where it shows a dental imprint but not where it breaks the skin and so that is also considered mutilation gotcha so in that scenario so let's say if there was a bite mark they could match somebody based on that bite mark. I think we have a good idea of the comparison between how a crime scene would have been processed back then and how it would have been processed now. Some things that are very detailed when a crime scene is processed now is they're very particular about noting who's on the scene, who's off the scene, what detectives are there when they first arrived. You would know like... This was the first person on scene. This was the person that barricaded the whole scene. This is the person that kept people over in this area. This is the person that collected evidence. This is the person that observed collecting evidence. This was the temperature at the time. This was the humidity at the time. Like that's the type of in-depth details that are logged today that are not necessarily would have been logged back then. And so a lot of the details that you see today, you know, you'd be really lucky if you saw some of those details back then
3: and those are important because a lot of those markers are indicators in terms of time of death and how fast the body is deteriorating and you know how long a person has been deceased and that kind of stuff so all that information is pertinent as well as if they're looking at footprints or they're looking at markers on the ground or anything like that to be able to say okay this is a police officer who was on the scene versus this is a some random footprint here that we need to take into consideration as potential evidence. Right. Right.
0: And I can tell you, there was a scene that, that I had gone to at one point in time and my shoes were taken because of Mm -hmm. how this, how the scene was. And my shoe happened to make an imprint at this particular scene. And so my shoes had to be taken, which I never got back, but that's the purpose of that is because, Obviously, you're trying to catch the right person, and so you have to log who's been there so that you know, okay, hey, like these are, you know, this is officer so-and-so's, or this is, you know, whoever's, so that you don't make a mistake. But also, that's why it's important that you protect the integrity of a scene. This is why a crime scene becoming damaged is, is very important today, because if you let too many people into an area where a crime's been committed, now you have to worry about, is this... These officers footprints, you know, so you right. want as few people in there as possible.
3: As anyone with any inkling of investigative knowledge would assume, the initial steps in the investigation of Jimmy Gall's murder began with law enforcement speaking with the person who found seven year old Jimmy. Melford Burrow Vandegrift, known to all as Van, had participated in the search for Jimmy the night prior, according to detectives Stephen Wright and Stanley Parsons and was the very first person law enforcement spoke with that morning. Van had discovered Jimmy in the field behind the homes on Minnewit Way that faced Jimmy's home and backed up to the field. He was found covered with what appeared to be brush, possibly alfalfa weeds, common in that field in an attempt to hide the body. This area was a popular play area for kids, teens, and a known lovers' lane at the time.
2: We used to, Yeah, we had soccer, army yeah. out there and and that closest to the houses, we used to have a main fort. I mean, a big trench, like six foot by six foot, we would cover it with wood so you had to, you know, it was hidden, and that's closest to the backyards of the houses. But then across the street, we used to dig little two by two foot holes that people could sit in.
4: We play hide, and, we hide and seek, and
2: we'd also play army, where we'd you'd pull these quads out, and they'd have a ball of dirt on the end. Well, we'd throw those as as bombs, but we'd all over there and across the road. So we'd, you know, toss stuff across the road. And
4: we do mounds for bike jumping.
2: Yeah, we do mounds for bike jumping and stuff. We take the dirt we dug out of the holes and make these plate things for, you know, jumping bikes. So, you know, in my mind, and I've told myself this a lot, that we probably dug that hole, that all those holes out there, at least one of my friends did, some of us, because all over on that side because we used to play army out there really where he was was very
4: close to our houses it wasn't all that close to his house down
0: the block from
2: where i bet that where he was found was equidistant between jimmy's house and our house
0: and do you think that it's possible that at night that they would have
3: missed him
2: yeah, yeah, I, it's, I, I think it, so, yeah.
4: If he was in a hole, if he yeah. was down in
2: a hole. Covered yeah. up with brush, yeah.
3: He was 75 feet from Granola Way and approximately 200 yards from his home, or as some detectives described as merely a block away from his house. These measurements placed the location of his body towards the back of a lot that had no home on it yet, but would be the future setting of 7137 Granola Way in Citrus Heights, consistent with all measurements, location descriptions, and statements at that time. This field was enclosed by Granola Way, Noreen Avenue, and Kirsten Street. The entire length of the field measures approximately 280 yards, or roughly two and one-third of football fields in length, and 78 yards in width, approximately two-thirds the length of a football field. When fully developed, this field would later contain 24 houses, but not until the late 1970s as development continued. Law enforcement determined right away that Jimmy's death had not been an accident, nor had been self-inflicted, and determined immediately that Jimmy had been murdered. The investigation, which had begun as a missing persons case, transitioned to a homicide case. Officers were placed on double shifts, and days off were canceled.
5: I was at home. Uh, The day that he disappeared, that Saturday, I can remember I had been in my room, probably. It was raining. And I remember my mom calling me out and sitting in the family room with her. I vaguely feel like there may have been somebody else there. I don't know if mom heard about it, that he was missing from maybe Jimmy's mom calling, or if the police had come by. I suspect the former that it was a call from from Mrs. Gull, but I remember Mom sitting me down and asking me if I had seen or heard anything from Jimmy that day, and if I might know where he was. I didn't. I had not seen him, but I remember thinking that maybe if he was coming over and got caught out in the rain, that maybe he was hiding in Dad's car. And I remember going out in the rain to look. It was dark at that point. He was not there. I know that my father participated in the searches that were going on, search party. Mom was up all night making soup and sandwiches and coffee and drying people's clothes because it was raining, but gave people a place to come in out of the, the cold and the rain. And then the next morning, at some point, I may not even have been morning when we heard, but I remember mom telling me that Jimmy had been found and that he was dead. I didn't hear any specifics. Mom certainly would not have told me. I do know that there were rumors in the neighborhood, and I have no idea when I heard them the first time, but there were rumors that he had been castrated and strangled.
3: Sacramento County Sheriff's Inspector William Delameter reported that Jimmy had been strangled and that it was possible that he was strangled with a piece of his own clothing, a piece of fabric that was white in color, still tied around his neck, according to Captain George Munizik, who was a detective in charge of the detective division. Detective Munizic confirmed that Jimmy had been sexually assaulted and that his body was marked by several small bruises found lying next to his nude body was his clothing and other articles detective Munizic further indicated that jimmy had been killed at or near where he had been found he personally notified jimmy's parents at their home that morning deputies cleared the weeds from around the body and raked the ground for search of clues the area was damp around the body but dry where jimmy lay indicating that he had been placed there before the rain had started potentially
4: that late afternoon and into the evening, all the parents started hunting for him. My parents went out and hunted for him in that backfield.
2: Right. And I was the weekend, so I wasn't around until Sunday early evening because I went fishing with my grandparents that weekend.
0: Was it dark when everybody started looking for him?
4: I'm going to guess that it was probably in the dark, mostly because you really didn't know... That there was anything major wrong until after dinner time. Harris and everything were out in that field hunting for him. They were there until like one o'clock in the morning hunting for him.
3: It had been raining that day as well, from what I understand.
4: Well, that's what they say, but it wasn't raining during the day because mm. we had the party. And my mom and dad said that it was not raining when they were out hunting for him at all. It may have rained later, but when they were, everybody was out hunting for him, it was not raining.
3: The last person known to see Jimmy alive was his mother, Dolores Gall, when Jimmy came into the house and told her that he had to return to the field to retrieve something around 2.30 p.m. on the 2nd of May. He Had been in the field with Richard Guy Nelson III, affectionately known as Guy, extracting iron particles from some sandy loam in the west gutter of Granola Way, just 100 feet from where his body was later found. Jimmy had returned home for a magnet and was last seen by Guy riding his bike towards Minowet Way. Mrs. Ann Denny of 7236 Minowet Way stated that she saw Jimmy alone in the field behind her home shortly after 2 p.m. Additionally, Mr. and Mrs. Doolittle stated that they saw Jimmy around the same time cutting through their yard, at which time Mr. Doolittle asked Jimmy to be quiet as his own children were taking a nap. Mr. Doolittle stated that Jimmy had turned around and said that he had to go back toward the field to get something.
1: And then his dad came over. It was after two, looking for him. I told him where he was, where we last left him. And then about five o'clock or so, The ladies in white, which is ladies that work with the sheriff's department, the volunteer nurses, happened to be a friend of my mother's, and we used to be her neighbor. Shirley Verhine comes and gets me and takes me uh, around to where we were, took me to Jimmy's house. We looked underneath the bed. We looked in the closet. His parents were already, you know, on the move. The neighborhood started gathering up with people. The cops showed up. It was getting dark. It felt dark and wet, and it was just, there was a mood of fear. I remember Mr. Doolittle didn't come out. The garage didn't come out. You know, the whole neighborhood's getting full, and we got cops and everything, and just certain people were interested, and then the whole neighborhood was involved. The, the close-by neighbors, some of them just didn't even come out and never really had a conversation about it. So while this is all going on, Mr. Doolittle comes out. But again, his car's still gone. So the kids never saw him all day. Never saw it. the wife, the kids, their car's been gone since Friday night. So he comes out around 6, and he's out late, and it's dark, and he's standing in the street in front of his house, more towards the dill, and he's talking to two cops. And my sister and I are looking at him, and I'm sorry, but my instinct was, he's done something to Jimmy, because nobody's home. That was my instinct, not knowing anything else. But I know he's, he's got him in the trunk of the car in the garage. And this was just between my sister and I. We never disclosed what happened that day with him. We were scared. The cops, uh, the detectives asked us about that day. Well, what's so strange is that Sunday morning when we found out, my mother woke us up and told us that they found his body. It was nude, that he was kidnapped and strangled, molested. That's all we knew. And so, of course, we had to stay in the house. The whole neighborhood shut down. Nobody for a year played in their front yard, played in the streets. We walked to school in groups. There was a sense of, there's a murder here in this neighborhood. Everybody felt it was someone in the neighborhood. Um, It got really quiet and there was, it was like everything changed. Everything, people started moving out. Um, Social life was gone. You couldn't play in the field. You couldn't ride your bike that that Sunday morning when we woke up and we heard the news it was just doom and gloom that day we had to stay in the house and my bedroom faced the street and it was a big bedroom window and it was a little afternoon and I saw the Doolittle's car pull up the passenger mom gets out Ann gets out her sister gets out and she's got the baby and then the little son gets out so I go running out the front door And get to the sidewalk and I tell them Jimmy's been strangled and they're just looking at me and my mom came and was screaming at me you know get your ass don't be doing that you know just how inappropriate I was honestly until all of this opened up and they started asking me questions I started hearing about that day where others went I knew nothing else I knew nothing until my 20s when uh, my son, my girlfriend uh, ran into him at the grocery store with her kids and took him home and I'm looking for him, called the cops, it's I was field you know, it was he was 7 and it was just horrible so my mom gave disclosed to me some of the things about Jimmy because I told her you know, we've never talked about it, we never got counseling it just there was just a distrust of not to trust anybody. So she then disclosed to me what happened to him and that his penis was bitten off. And, and then I told her about Doolittle that day in the field. And she said, you know what's so strange is they were never friends. Dolores, my mom's name was Dolores. Dolores and my mom were friends. The Doolittles all of a sudden became their best friends and was really very involved in their life. And I don't know if that's just being a Christian or what that was all about, but Mom thought that was really weird how they just honed in on him and was trying to help them do everything. And she was, you know, pretty distraught. She had a husband who had cancer. Jimmy told me about it that day that it had gone to his brain. That it's, Most people didn't know that he had cancer. But, uh... That day, the detective came over that following Monday. I know they questioned my father like three times because he was visiting us. They questioned my sister and I twice. And the questions they asked us just, I vaguely remember, but I know they were just like yes and no questions, no detail. And I asked my mom, why didn't they ask us the right questions? We probably would have told them about that whole day out in the field and being watched. They could have pursued it. And that's always been the guilt for me. Gary
3: Nelson, who waited for Jimmy near his home, said it began to rain around 3 p.m. So he did not return to the field to meet back up with Jimmy. Jimmy would not be seen alive again. Officers conducted a house-to-house investigation, or as we know it today, a canvas of the neighborhood, questioning playmates and neighbors. No one reported seeing anything strange. No one reported seeing a stranger in the community. Detectives began to develop leads, obvious that they were looking for what they termed as a sex degenerate. On May 4th, 1964, Deputy Sheriff Orlin Knudson combed through the area of the field in Sylvan Park where Jimmy had been found. With no clues and no suspects at the time, Sheriff John Mr. Lee appealed to Jimmy's playmates and residents of the Sylvan Park Subdivision for information, asking that anyone who saw Jimmy or had any information about his whereabouts or activity after 2 p.m. on Saturday to contact his office. He also asked that anyone who saw any strange individuals or activity after that time to do the same. Mr. and Mrs. Gall, Jimmy's parents, would see Jimmy's remains for the first time on Tuesday, May 5th, 1964. Why? Why did it happen to us, Jimmy's parents said. James Anthony Gall Sr. said, It is something you always read about in papers, but never think will happen to you. The boy could hardly wait to go to the carnival. I had promised the kids I would take them. My other boy still can't believe Jimmy's dead. We told him Jimmy had been hurt and won't ever come back. He seems to think a doctor will fix Jimmy and he'll see him again. Inspectors checked the alibis of known sex deviants, or what we know today as sex offenders, in the Sylvan Park subdivision or the field area of Sisters Heights, California, for possible leads. There was no sex offender registry during this time, and sex offenders were not tracked and managed as closely as they are today. Neighbors in a six to eight block radius were questioned. James Sr., Jimmy's father, said, I want the right one caught. I guess they need someone to come forward with something. Maybe there is one little thing missing which will help them find the right person. A 15-year-old boy who lived close to the Gall family was arrested at San Juan High School on Monday, May 4, 1964, and charged with the molestation of a 7-year-old girl, an arrest that developed out of the investigation of Jimmy Gall's case. Though questioned about Jimmy's murder, he was cleared. While housed at the Sacramento County Juvenile Hall, he also admitted relations with another 7-year-old girl the summer prior, with the sheriff's office indicating that he may be dangerous if left unchecked. The intensive investigation resulted in the arrest of two teenagers and a 57-year-old man who lived in the area where Jimmy was murdered, according to Detective Munizik and Lieutenant Harold Gurin. Each of those individuals were charged with separate molestation cases and each questioned about Jimmy's murder. Officers flew to Nardarko, Oklahoma on Thursday, May 7, 1964, to question another 15-year-old boy. The boy flew to Oklahoma on Monday, May 4, 1964, with money he borrowed from another family member. The meticulous examination of the crime scene, coupled with witness statements and forensic evidence, led law enforcement to develop theories regarding Jimmy's brutal murder. Persons of interest began to emerge, and while some arrests were made, they did not directly connect to Jimmy's murder. Key individuals, including Vandergriff, who discovered Jimmy's body, a 57-year-old male, and two neighborhood 15-year-old teenagers were questioned extensively. As we get into the initial steps in the investigation, the first person that they question obviously is going to be the person who found the body. Right. And that happens to be a uh, Vandegrift. So Vandegrift finds the body and he gets questioned extensively. And imagine
0: back at this point in time, how terrified he probably was because he knows that, a lot of their investigative techniques back then have to deal with their experience at the time and, you know, going off a of fill and going off of, you know, so I'm pretty sure that he was nervous in even getting the police out there thinking I want to tell them the truth. And, you know, of course, I don't want them to think I had anything to do with this.
3: Even in today's day and age, typically whoever reports the crime is typically a person of interest that needs to be ruled out
0: and again, some of the key elements to that are they've been on the site. So could they have dropped hair? Could they have cut themselves and dropped blood? Like there's just all of those different things play into that. So now they've been on the scene. So could they have things left on the scene because they weren't
3: a person of interest? So yeah, so very important. Talk to me about the location of where they found Jimmy. And From my understanding, there's been conflicting accounts of where he was potentially found. But I know that you guys have done a lot of research on where he was found and you've come to a determination.
0: As we know, so for the general public, you know that you can go look if you have access to a lot of these older articles. You can go look up all these older articles. You can look at the distances that they give and you can gauge pretty well where his body would have been. Now, there's some people who have made comments about the time frame back then, or some people who were exposed to the neighborhood later that think, oh, no, maybe it was over here. But based on a lot of the original communications that came out in the very beginning from back then, they all line up to the particular address that we were able to identify right and the measurements match up almost exactly in addition to that there's been some other ways that we've been able to confirm that as well which we're going to share in a later episode but yes that's the correct area Now, why is it important to correctly identify the area? When you're going back and you're looking at where the body was and you're looking at multiple statements from people who had spent time with Jimmy that morning or people who saw Jimmy at different times or saw different activity, it's important to know that, to know who was closest to that area or where the activity occurred. So those things are all very important. And that's why it's such an important detail in the case to get right. So the timeline, that is one thing that I wanted to kind of cover real quick. And that's because when you have multiple people giving statements or you have multiple people recalling things from a long time ago as well, and when they're recalling things at a point when they were children and now they're adults, their memory is going to be a little bit different. Now with trauma, sometimes you can have some gaps Sometimes it can be charred into your into your memory and it be very consistent every single time. So you have to bear all that in mind based on the numerous people that we've spoken with. The timeline is really, really good with everybody based on everybody's statements Until you get to about the two o'clock p.m. time frame, and even then, that the statements are very, very close. But the reason I say there can be a little bit of, I would say, plus or minus in those times, is because there's statements where some of the neighbors saw Jimmy like in the field or coming through their yard, and then you know, Miss Gall recalls speaking to Jimmy. Jimmy going back out to the field, leaving his bike, and then of course, Guy Nelson says. Well, I was planning to be back out in the field with him, but it started raining at three. So I went home. So there's this gap of time where we believe the assault and murder probably took place. And that would be between the times of probably a little after 2 p.m. If the neighbors were accurate in their time frame of seeing him and somewhere around that three o'clock, maybe a little bit after three time frame. And that aligns with statements of. When Jimmy's family started calling around looking for Jimmy and when the neighborhood started kind of looking out and, you know, out windows and stuff and saying, you know, hey, is Jimmy outside? Calling neighbors, those kinds of things. That's a pretty good timeline. People's accounts are going to be a little bit different. There's been a couple statements like about a party time. Could have started at 12. It could have started at 1. It's not exact. And that's okay. Okay. But I just want people to be aware of that. So it's okay for one person's statement to be different than others. It's okay for there to be. Not everybody's going to remember everything exactly the same. Plus, if you're part of an event, so if you were part of the party, you might remember the party time and the other person is kind of guesstimating. And that's okay.
3: We're looking back at a crime that happened more than 60 years ago. And we're asking people to remember something that happened 60 years ago. And even though it's a traumatic emotional event for everyone involved, Everyone is going to have a different perspective. Eyewitness accounts are the most non-dependable type of evidence that police typically accumulate during a crime scene. You can have a crime occur and you can have five people witness the same exact crime and all five people will give you different accounts of what happened. Because everyone is going to be looking at that event through their particular perspective and also with their particular biases as well. What's more important to them? What are their values? What are their beliefs? What are their norms? What are their experiences with police, with crime? with like All that's going to play into how you see something play out and what you witness. It's always going to be different. And our job in accumulating these stories is to really get everyone's story and then tell everyone's story from their perspective and not try to assume we know what the truth is. There's always going to be one person's story, another person's story, and then somewhere in the middle of that is going to be the truth.
0: And one of the things that I want to call out as to why detectives separate people, this is very important because when you're trying to piece together a timeline, so a timeline is very important. And when you're trying to piece that together, if you have a group of people who had different experiences, so let's say in the neighborhood you have Four, or six different things going on in different areas of the neighborhood all at the same time. They're all gonna have a different story, a different perspective of how things played out. Maybe you're the person at the party, maybe you're the person in the field, maybe you're the person at home that was sick. Maybe you're the person at home that was sleeping. Your stories are all going to be very different. So when you come in to tell your stories, the detectives aren't going to want you guys to be in the same room conversing about your times and syncing your times because it's very important that when you give your statement that they can then take those statements and line them up and say, okay, this makes a lot of sense. This timeline goes into this timeline and this one into this one.
3: It could be damaging to the case when you try to do that because then it looks like you've colluded your story. And you've created a narrative to explain what happened as opposed to just telling your perspective. Right.
0: Even if your intentions are well, because then any good attorney is going to say, okay, this person's changing
3: their story. Right.
0: They're using so-and-so's timeline. They're not even using their own timeline. So just
3: something to be aware of. Now, the officers start to go house to house doing a canvas of the neighborhood. And they're asking people, have they seen anything strange? Have they seen any strangers Were there any strangers or anything seen that was strange That from from your accounts?
0: No, there wasn't. There actually wasn't one person that mentioned really any strange activity and definitely not any strangers. Like not one person mentioned there being somebody that they didn't Recognize. recognize in the neighborhood.
3: I know that's important because they had the carnival in town and there was some talk about could it have been a carny? Could it have been somebody traveling with the carnival? And I'm pretty sure the police looked into that.
0: They did. And very quickly, they realized that it definitely wasn't somebody outside the neighborhood. They realized very early on in the investigation that it had to be somebody in the neighborhood, which a lot of the neighbors were told. You know, back then, police weren't as tight lipped either about the investigation. They would share some of those details. And so some of those details were shared.
3: Now, they start talking about the sex degenerate and really what that means in in those terms back in those days. That's basically what we consider today to be a sex offender. And obviously they did not have a sex offender registry and they didn't have this long list of sex offenders. So it's more like whoever the cops knew that were living in the area that were previous sex offenders is who they went to go question and who they asked about.
0: In the Sacramento area, they were tracking some of their sex offenders. Nice. Um, I wouldn't call it a, a really like a, official, a registry, yeah, registry. but that's definitely based on his case. That was something that they wanted to look into because of what they knew about what had occurred with Jimmy. And there too, I want to bring up the fact that for some people who aren't aware. So when police use the terminology, even back then to say that somebody has been sexually assaulted, there is numerous different ways that they come to that conclusion. So rather that is an oral sexual assault or a anal, a vaginal. So it's not, one in particular, So all of those things fall under the umbrella of a sexual assault. One of the reasons that the police wanted to find out if anybody had seen Jimmy or any activity after the two o'clock time frame is because of how we discussed the the kind of two two thirty time frame around that point in time. Really, the last physical sighting of Jimmy was around two or two thirty somewhere around those time frames. And with the majority of those being around the two o'clock time frame. So police wanted to know like, Hey, from that point on, what did anybody see? So that became a very important time frame for law enforcement.
3: As the family moves into bearing Jimmy and coming to terms with what has happened, they're devastated. Absolutely. Devastated. And you can hear it in the comments that, that Jimmy's father makes. You know, why did it happen to our family? And typically that's a normal, like how, you know, I read about this, but I can't imagine that it would ever happen to me. He was in shock
0: and he was feeling guilt because he had woken up. The kids had been coming in the house in and out all day. He had woken up, you know, ready to take them. And he's like, can't round them up, you know? So then he felt bad later. You know, he started feeling guilty because he was a little bit agitated by that, you know, that he couldn't find them anywhere. Then, for his mom, you know, him coming into the house and going back out. She had been working on a degree in accounting because she knew that her husband was sick and she knew that she was going to have to take care of the family. And actually Vandergrift was a math teacher at one of the high schools, and so he had been helping her with her accounting homework. So this is how they knew, you know, the Vandergrift family prior to this ever occurring.
3: Oh, so Vandergriff had a personal relationship with the golf family because they were helping him with the college stuff. Yeah. Got it. That's very interesting. Now, a 15-year-old boy who lived close to the golf family is arrested at San Juan High School on Monday. What can you tell me about that arrest?
0: So we have been able to identify who this person is, and this is based on some things back then all the way to present day today. And this was their next-door neighbor and it was a member of the Garo family. They lived right next door. So if you were to come out of Jimmy Gaul's house, they didn't have anybody on their right side. Like there, there was an intersection there to their left was the Garo family. And then to the left of the Garo families was where Gay
3: and her family lived. And Gay had a friend that was one of the Garo siblings.
0: Yes. They had a daughter and she was friends with the daughter back then.
3: Okay. This is the kid that gets arrested at San Juan High School on Monday, May 4th, and he's charged with the molestation of a seven-year-old girl, and then it's determined that he had also molested another seven-year-old girl prior. Right. And there was some comments that were
0: made back in that time frame where, and the mom at the time for the Garou family was a stepmom. So there was three brothers. The three brothers, biological mom, the mom and dad had gotten a divorce. So the woman that was now living in that home was their stepmother who had... One older child who was an adult. And then she had a son that I don't even believe was living there at the time. I think he could have been very well living with his dad. He would have been around like in between the ages of the boys or some of one of the boys, the ages of one of the boys. Yeah. And then they had a daughter together, which was the friend of Gay's. The boys did Boy Scouts. The dad, he worked at Aerojet like a lot of the other families in the neighborhood. And there were some comments made by the mom when, when all of this came out, you know, of course you would think it was my, my boys. So obviously the boys at that time were known by people for. Being in trouble. Yeah. Being in trouble.
3: Also, there's a 57 year old man who is arrested. What do we know about this 57 year old man?
0: We actually haven't figured out who this 57-year-old man is and simply because he doesn't match the age of some of the people that have been mentioned to date. We have a map of the entire neighborhood and who lived there at that point in time. So we're trying to figure out who would have matched this age or very close to this age where they maybe could have gotten the age wrong. So it's not Vandegrift. It's not Doolittle who's been mentioned. So it's somebody else. And then, of course, we have a 15-year-old who we know is one of the grow boys. And then there's another 15-year-old who we've identified and currently we're in the process of solidifying who that person is at this point in time. I think one thing that we ended with on the last episode was talking about the potential of Vandergriff being a person of interest or Doolittle being a person of interest.
3: I am super excited to hear about the persons of interest that have been identified because I know there's more than one. And what's really shocking to me is that I've never lived personally in a neighborhood where you can have so many people that can be persons of interest for a murder of a seven-year-old. And that's really scary to me because this is an otherwise unremarkable neighborhood where people ate apple pie and people went and watched baseball games and everybody was friendly. and, And we even heard of some of the people that lived in this neighborhood and they said how everybody was super nice and it was perfect and everybody played outside. And then there's, a wolf among sheep. You just don't know who this person is. And after Jimmy's death, we start to see an exodus of families leaving this neighborhood. And it's got to be tied to that feeling of discomfort of not knowing who killed Jimmy.
0: And that's actually something interesting that's come up that I also wanted to address is about people moving away. So for starters, this particular area was an area where Aerojet brought in a lot of employees. They brought in workers that were, you know, mostly prior military. This was also close to a couple military areas. So there was already kind of a little bit of moving in and moving out already, um, some of these houses were being rented as opposed to sold, so there could be a little bit of a a trend. Multiple already, reasons, yeah, right. Yeah, of yeah, people I got you. moving out, there have been a couple different people that we've talked to, and just and I want people to understand that these were rumors, and mind you, that this is you know kids talking and hearing from other kids, from maybe other parents. About even Jimmy's family moving away. And oh, it's odd that, you know, Jimmy's family moved away. There are a couple statements that the Gall family made very early on where James Sr., Jimmy's dad, had said, We're not gonna stay living here. After everything that happened, like, we don't wanna be reminded. It's too much of a reminder for us to be here. They didn't wanna live there, not to mention that his dad was sick, terminally ill. And Jimmy's mother was having to, you know, she's in preparations for you know, having to take care of the family when she knows that her husband's going to be passing away. So they had to make some moves and that just would have been too much for her. And she may not have even been able to afford the house with his passing either. So there's multiple dynamics there and why they would move away. There was some some people that moved away pretty quickly that first year. I would say the first person that moved out of the neighborhood was the Doolittle family. So this happened in May they were moved out at the latest by mid-September. So within months. The family that, that will be mentioned in the next episode, um, they also moved away by the end of the year. So kind of keep that in mind. Is it a huge red flag? Not necessarily, but it can be a red flag. Yeah,
3: It's definitely something that kind of grabs your attention and go, mm, you know, what's that about? Right. It, it could mean absolutely nothing. Or it could mean everything.
0: As we draw the curtains on today's gripping episode of Who Murdered Jimmy Gall? The Investigation, we find ourselves standing at the precipice of a chilling tragedy that continues to haunt both time and memory. Through the annals of history, we have journeyed back to the turbulent year of 1964, witnessing the valiant efforts of law enforcement as they grappled with the harrowing aftermath of seven-year-old Jimmy Gall's tragic assault and murder. From the painstaking collection of evidence to the relentless pursuit of elusive persons of interest, we've unearthed the shadows of suspicion and illuminated the path toward justice in a case that has captivated the hearts and minds of many for decades. But as the echoes of the past reverberate through the quarters of time, our quest for truth is still far from over. In our forthcoming episode, we shed light on a mysterious manuscript delivered to Tracy Ferris, a new resident to the Citrus Heights community sometime in 2003, by one of Jimmy Gall's former neighbors and potentially classmates, almost 40 years after his assault and murder, potentially implicating a family member in the crime. Would this manuscript hold the remaining clue to close this ever-elusive case, Or is it just a twist in the mystery of Jimmy's murder? Join us as we continue to unravel the details of this horrible crime that shook Citrus Heights to its core, uncovering truths hidden for decades, and learn about what lies within the pages of the mysterious manuscript. Stay informed, stay engaged, and stay tuned for the next installment in this gripping series as the pursuit of justice for Jimmy Gall continues.
3: That's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime podcast. podcast. Bye.